0: I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is David Gunkel, professor in the Department of Communication at Northern Illinois University. An educator, scholar, and author, Dr. Gunkel specializes in ethics of emerging technology. His recent books include the forthcoming How to Survive a Robot Invasion, Rights, Responsibility, and AI, Zizek Studies, and An Introduction to Communication and Artificial Intelligence. His past books include Transgression 2.0, Media, Culture, and the Politics of a Digital Age, Of Remixology. Ethics and Aesthetics After Remix, and Heidegger and the Media. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website www.trapart.net You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon patreon.com forward slash Vanessa Two Three C A. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. We got in touch originally because of the cut-up kind of stuff, but the AI right. stuff, I mean, it's all, it all goes together.
1: Yeah, it does. So, I mean, in, in my sort of way of thinking about this, I think, you know, especially cut-ups, remix, collage, these are all sort of precursors to what we now call computational creativity, right? So where the DJ is sampling music and then rearranging samples to create a new composition, we now have algorithms that can sample um, either... Visual art, or audio, or whatever your medium is, and then recombine it uh, following some sort of uh, either prescribed set of instructions, like a template, or by using some sort of machine learning uh, capabilities where it finds patterns in existing data to spit out something new. So, I think you know we often look at uh, DJ culture as a sort of challenge to longstanding assumptions about artistic creativity. Authority authenticity and I think the machine is just an extension of uh, you know that development and I think we're seeing a lot of interesting things happening right now with algorithmic uh, generation of art
0: Absolutely, and how did you come upon this interest in the first place?
1: Um, You know, it's interesting because, you know, I I had played in bands when I was in high school and when I was an undergraduate and uh, at the time that Rapper's Delight came out, um, which, you know, usually recognizes the first rap record, although there's some, uh, you know, debate about that, Um, you know, I thought it was interesting, but I didn't quite connect with it immediately because I wasn't quite sure what it was doing or what it meant. And then a couple years later, I heard Public Enemy and I heard Disposable Heroes of the Hippocracy, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute, there's something really going on here that's interesting, because like the punk rockers that I grew up with, who were sort of mining the previous musical traditions and ripping out of it uh, various things to repurpose and and reorganize, uh, here you had uh, DJs and very young, uh, you know, MCs and and rappers sort of mining stacks of vinyl records and using turntables as an instrument and developing this brand new art form uh, that, you know, really uh, for my purposes was, you know, very challenging to a lot of the established protocols and a lot of the established uh, values that people had about the creation of of music.
0: Yeah, that's very true. And I'm coming into it, like I said, from um, like cut-ups like Barozian cut-ups, like actually cutting up language and rearranging that. And Burroughs always said that, um, you know, all writing is cut ups because you're just rearranging words.
1: Right. In fact, um, when I was uh, much younger, I was very much involved with uh, sort of reading about and sort of digesting the entire Dadaist, surrealist, uh, you know, sort of manifestos and uh, the way that they were thinking about uh, the creation of things out of random uh, associations. And so you had the poetry of uh, Tristan Zara, you know, which was cut up poetry. Um, You had all these sort of collage um, compositions that were created, you know, in in poster and in, in book form. And I was really fascinated by this ability to... Um, sort of use found objects, uh, whether it's in print or whether it's in um, some sort of uh, you know physical form, and then transform that into uh, an object of art, right? Um, to sort of challenge the sort of uh, culture industry in terms of who can produce art, how art is produced, and uh, what manifests itself as the artistic object.
0: And did you just have a book come out about this, or is it about to come out?
1: So the, the book really on this subject matter was the Of Remixology, um, Ethics and Aesthetics After Remix, which came out from MIT Press in 2016. So it's been a couple years.
0: And what's that like?
1: Um, You know, it's, it's really interesting because I think the book has had an impact that I didn't anticipate. It seems to be really big in Korea, where they've actually translated it into Korean. So it's like one of my first Korean translations. Um but uh, the postcard press picked it up and they did a, a Korean translation and it appears to have really sold very well in Korea.
0: That's great. See, I had thought that it was just about to come out. So now I need to go order it cuz I didn't know it was out yet. Um but I'm writing a book on uh called scansion and psychoanalysis and art and it's taking like the lacanian idea of the cut or like abruptly ending the the analytic session to kind of get to more unconscious material, and then I'm like applying that idea to artists that kind of do the same thing by cutting up language or cutting up images, cutting up newspapers or magazines or music or whatever, um, and how they rearrange it to kind of see what it really says or let, let more uh, ideas come together than was originally intended.
1: Right. No, I, I think what's interesting about a lot of these practices is that when you begin to manipulate the materiality of, of the art object, and you're forced to sort of conform to it, as opposed to it conforming to you, it creates associations that reveal things that you could call the return of the repressed, right? A a kind of uh, psychoanalytical uh, understanding of of a message that is sort of uh, not in you, but it's in the art, and it sort of reveals itself to you in the process of, of making these kinds of associations between what seem to be disparate objects at times.
0: Exactly, exactly. And then you have like a group of people that do this, so that you're always like tagging certain people when you're right. posting about these cut up things, what's that about?
1: So it's funny, a lot of us came out with books near and around the same time frame. So uh, there's Edward, uh, Eduardo Navas, who's at the uh, Penn State University, and he's an artist. And he did a book called Remix Theory, which was really a powerful influence on what I did in the Remixology book. Uh, There's Aram Sinrich, uh, who is at uh, American University in Washington, D.C., who did a book called Mashed Up, um, which is specifically about music, but also very much related to these sorts of practices. Uh, Mark America, who is a visual artist, and Vijay, who I've worked with for years. I've known him for God, at least two decades. Um, he wrote the first, actually, it's interesting. He wrote the blurb on my first book in 2001. And just yesterday, I wrote a blurb for his new book on uh, you know, per, uh, Persona in re- Remix, um, which he's d- collaborating with a filmmaker on this project. Um, and who else is in that mix? Oh, uh, DJ Spooky, Paul Miller, uh, who did some, you know, he's, he's an amazing DJ, does some really interesting stuff, but he's also a really good writer and has written uh, a lot. So we've got this sort of cohort of people who, for, you know, just lack of a better description, just happened to be out on the market with remix books about the same time. And we started to connect that way.
0: I love it. I love discovering you guys. Um, So that's what they're calling it, remix or remixology?
1: Yeah. So uh, the term remixology I borrowed or stole from Mark America. Um, I added the of in front of it to do sort of a remix of Derrida with the of grammatology, right? Right. Um, And so there's that tension there. Um, But yeah, I think remix has become the umbrella term for all these practices. You know, there's been this sort of circulation of different terminology, from collage to bootleg to mashup to, um, what else has been in circulation? Those are the big ones, Um, bootleg, mashup, collage. uh, I think Aram calls it uh, sample, uh, reconfigurable culture is is his term. So everybody's got terms for this stuff, and as you know, it, we've moved along. it's sort of, you know, remixes sort of popped out as the sort of master term, not because it's any better than any of the others. It just happened to be used more often, I think, in the popular discourse.
0: That's great because I'm almost done with this book, and I've just been calling it the cut-up method. But um, you know, there's going to have to be a part two. <laughs> <laughs> Remixing the cut-ups. Cut-uping, cutting up the remixes.
1: <laughs> you know, and I think it, it a lot of it depends on, you know, what sort of art tradition you come out of. I think if you're coming out of literature, and poetry cut up makes a lot of sense because that's the term that Burroughs uses right so it's you know with his work the cut up becomes this kind of touchstone for literary practice in the late 20th century uh with a lot of postmodern uh, uh, approaches in poetry and lit um, i think if you're coming out of music mashup is maybe your uh sort of preferred term or remix is your preferred term um, and i think the probably the reason why remix has got traction is that for most people, their point of contact with this kind of art form is in audio, right? It's with, mm-hmm. you know, DJ practices on dance floors and in clubs where you hear these kinds of compositions and remixes, the, the sort of terminology that is utilized to sort of name that.
0: Right, much more people would know what that is than the cut up in particular. But it's also interesting because you mis- mentioned Tristan Zara and it could be like, I-, I talk about him doing the accidental poems by cutting out all the individual words but that could be like started from like Luigi Visolo and his noise, or, or, noise organs, or like uh, when they were doing like sound poems or like kind of nonsense sound poems out loud uh, in the Dada movement.
1: Oh, yeah. There's, I mean, it, it, what's incredible about the Dada movement is that it wasn't just limited to one medium, right? I mean, because they were sort of situated. At a period of time when all these art practices were exploding in different directions and different media simultaneously, they were doing visual art, they were doing theater, they were doing audio, they were doing some early experiments with radio. I mean, there was all kinds of interesting things going on during that period of time.
0: Yeah, I went. I recently went to Zurich over the summer, and I went to the Cabaret Voltaire, and it's a great, I, I, it's a great place. And the, I talked to them, and they do events and stuff there. So now I'm thinking. I've done these kind of psychoanalysis and art conferences. Um and now I'm thinking I would love to do something at the Cabaret Voltaire. It'd be like going to Mecca, you know. No,
1: no, no. <laughs> That's actually a good description of it. That that would be perfect. And they have a really nice I mean, you probably saw it. They have a really nice performance space uh, yeah. with uh, cabaret. Uh so you could actually do something really interesting there.
0: Yeah, for sure. So what are you working on now?
1: So now I just so i have three books coming out um simultaneously not not because i planned it that way i had sort of sequenced them and they sort of compressed the time frames uh, in various ways so i have a book just out uh called how to survive a robot apocalypse or how to survive a robot robot invasion excuse me um which is sort of a introductory book on what are the opportunities and challenges that we face in uh in the face of ai and robots uh as it is currently configured in this world um and then I have an undergraduate textbook on uh, communication and artificial intelligence, which I wrote to really bring my students in the social sciences and the humanities up to speed in this technology, because we often look at this technology as something that belongs to the roboticists or the AI engineers or the computer scientists, but it's really the humanists and the social scientists who've got to make sense of it and figure out what it means for us uh, as a culture, as a society, as, you know, a community. and so. We're gonna need social scientists and humanists who understand this technology and are able to answer a lot of these big questions. And then I'm involved uh, as one of the founding editors, uh, the International Journal of Zizek Studies. So we're doing a 12 year of uh, greatest hits uh, book of the best articles out of the journal and uh, that's coming out as a kind of compilation.
0: Oh nice. So which one of these are we gonna talk about next?
1: Um, I think the Robot Apocalypse or the Robot Invasion uh, book is kind of a good thing to talk about because it's more general and it is really pitched for people who want to know something about all this big emerging tech but don't necessarily have the background or the time to commit to reading a 300-page book. It's a a small little volume, about 110 pages.
0: Oh, great. Yeah, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) So what's it about?
1: (laughs) So... You know, as I introduce it at the beginning of the book, um, I I pitch it this way, that you know, we often think about the robot invasion looking like uh, what we see in science fiction, right, like you have the Terminator, uh, where the robots come from the future and they're here to kill us all, or in the uh, original stage play from uh, Carl Chapik, which is where we get the word robot from Rossum's Universal Robots, Mm -hmm. uh, it's the robot uprising, right, we create these robots and they all of a sudden, to assert themselves, and they uh, rise up against us. We see the same thing in Blade Runner or Westworld, right? So, you know, our robot invasion images are always the robots coming to take over, and it's always a very violent kind of uh, scenario that, uh, you know, plays well in science fiction because it creates good drama. But I think, in reality, the robot invasion looks more like the fall of Rome than it does science fiction. In other words, we are slowly steadily over time inviting machines into our world to do more and more of the heavy lifting of our cognitive processing or um, other kinds of tasks. So we now no longer choose our own movies, Netflix does it for us with the recommendation algorithm. Mm-hmm. We no longer choose the music we listen to. Spotify does that with their recommendation algorithm. We have all kinds of little devices we talk to and they talk back to us, like Siri and Alexa. We are slowly moving in the direction of self-driving cars, where we won't even be driving our own automobiles. And so eventually one day we're going to wake up like the Romans did and say, God, where did all the barbarians come from? You know, where did they all... How do they populate our world in this way? So I think it's a very slow incursion. So if it's a catastrophe, it's a slow-moving catastrophe. Um, And so my sort of goal in writing the book is to get out in front of this before we have that shock moment of where did all the robots come from. We already are prepared to respond to this uh, change in our social world in a way that is responsible but also is responding to the opportunities and challenges that confront us
0: yeah that makes sense being a being a psychoanalyst i've always just been concerned with like listening and speech and language and you know emotion and that sort of thing the unconscious and i've really like avoided you know technology it's not like something that comes natural to me um but i've realized in recent years like this i mean it's such a part of our social structure that we have to start thinking about this and so now i've been trying to think of like how to use technology more, you know, to facilitate psychoanalysis, maybe to help people who are in more remote areas be able to reach practitioners and that sort of thing, and like, what's the ethics around that and all of that. But um, yeah, I've int- I've found that like the people that I've interviewed lately that work, I interviewed this one person named uh, Jacob Johansen who uh, talks about psychoanalysis and digital media. Um, and kind of how, it, more like in a social way, like you said, like more, how does this uh, fit with our reactions to one another and our social structure and like, what does it mean? And I'm glad that people like you and him and this other person I interviewed named Damien Patrick Williams. Um, oh, I know.
1: Yeah, he's a great guy. He's
0: so great. And I'm so glad you guys are thinking about this because it's really, really important. Um, and Damien talks about um, like artificial intelligence versus machine consciousness um, right. and, like what's the kind of differences between this terminology and way of thinking about it. And I never even thought about things like that before. So <laughs> it's a lot so, to chew know, on. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's really interesting. You should mention psychoanalysis and, uh, these sorts of things, because in a sense, artificial intelligence begins with a kind of demonstration with the therapist relationship to the patient, um, So when Alan Turing writes his famous paper in 1950 called Computing, Machinery, and Intelligence, he says he wants to answer the question or address the question, can machines think? And he says immediately, you know, it's a a nonsensical question. You can't make sense of it because we don't know what think means. We don't know really what intelligence is. So he says, okay, I'm going to change it up a little bit and ask a different question in terms of a game, and that's the famous imitation game or the Turing test. And he predicts in 1950 that it'll take about 50 years for someone to create a machine that can fool us into thinking we're talking to another human being. Well, it doesn't take that long, right? In 1966, Joseph Weizenbaum at MIT creates Eliza. And Eliza is the first chatbot, right? It's a little computer application that you can chat to on the keyboard and it writes back to you and you can have a conversation. Well, Eliza was emulating a Rogerian psychoanalyst. Um, So what you would do is you would talk to Eliza and Eliza would just throw your questions back at you by rearranging the words and it was a rather therapeutic kind of uh, event. Um, People came away from it feeling kind of good, like after having talked to their therapist. And there were even some therapists at the time, in the 60s, who thought this might be a way to um, create an automatic therapist that people could talk to, um, not for really big crises, but small things, right, to sort of work through problems. And so there's a long tradition of this kind of therapeutic psychoanalytic um, connection between artificial intelligence and uh, you know, the uh, practices of the therapist. Um, and even to this day, we look at a lot of AI as being defined by the ability to talk. And we now have things that talk to us, Alexa and Siri and uh, Cortana and things like this. So you know the touchstone there or the connection there is much deeper than I think we recognize.
0: That's so interesting because Jacob asked me to write a paper for a journal that he's doing on like psychoanalysis and digital media, and I didn't know about this phenomenon in the 60s, and I'm going to have to uh, weave that in because what I've been doing is basically um, t- looking at like Lacan's mirror stage and just basically how when you either undergo a psychoanalysis or like study it or... You know facilitate it. you realize like how much people are really kind of talking to their own projections <laughs> and like not Correct. really connecting with one another so much as they think they are or we think we are I should say, and that we're like really just projecting on each other and like working through our own things with with or at each other, basically, so you know especially like in an analytic session once you get somebody going after a few sessions and they kind of get into the rhythm of how it works the analyst job is so minimal it's like basically like you said just like repeating their words back to them here and there very infrequently just to get them to continue to speak but really people at a certain point are like doing their own analysis and doing most of the work themselves um so that's fascinating i'm totally going to use this
1: yeah and what's interesting about it is that you know eliza is not in any way conscious or intelligent it's just a bunch of computers code that you know so it searches the input text for something it recognizes and then has prefabricated script that it spits back, right? So it's not about the machine being intelligent or unconscious, it's about what happens on the side of the human being, about what our projection is into the object based on our conversational interaction. And that's very powerful. You know, It's something that can be uh, utilized in ways that could be very useful, but also could be manipulated in ways that would be very dangerous. And I think you know we have to recognize socially speaking, uh, we've got something here that uh, can cut both ways, and we have to really work out what are the opportunities, but also what are the big challenges that we have to face.
0: Yeah, and that's what Damien was talking a lot about was um like all of these kinds of data that's fed into the the AI that makes it like look for certain things or judge certain people differently than other people, and like all these different biases that that's kind of built into the technology. And what a problem that is and how people need to do more to avoid that.
1: Yeah, and it's really hard to avoid because these big companies that are developing these algorithms like Amazon and Google and uh, Facebook, uh, you know, they have access to massive amounts of data. Data that exceeds the ability of, of any human being to process and therefore the algorithm is able to find patterns that human beings are unable to see. Um, And sometimes that works out really well. Um, My sister's a dermatologist. She does a diagnosis of skin cancer. And she knows in five years, there's gonna be a cell phone app that you can just point at your skin, take a picture and it'll diagnose whether the mole on your uh, forearm is cancerous or not because the algorithm is able to find the patterns that um, identify visually what a cancerous mole looks like and will be able to do it better than human beings can um, with its capabilities to have access to this large data set. On the other hand, as Damien had uh, pointed out to you, we're finding out that a lot of our data contains loads of human bias um, that we did not know was there. Uh, We thought the data was sort of uh, neutral, but it's not, right? Because it comes from human beings, because it is about human beings, it encodes or at least uh, datifies a lot of our bias. uh, And when the algorithm chugs through it, the algorithm can often find uh, bias in the data set uh, that we're unaware of but then have some very bad results when that algorithm starts making decisions or taking actions.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that makes sense because nothing in human humanity is neutral and a lot of our biases and stuff are unconscious. It's not like the coders are like purposefully doing this, you know, but right. there's just like exactly. it just comes through. Um, isn't that so interesting? This like phenomena of uh, doing these medical diagnoses over apps and things. I just moved to Sweden last year, and people seem to use that a lot more here. Like for minor things that you can just take a picture of, that like a rash or something like that. It's all like through their kind of healthcare system. You can just like look it up on the computer, take a picture, and get it diagnosed.
1: So, you know, the story was always with automation and technological unemployment is that, you know, the machines would come for the blue collar jobs, like the jobs that are dull, dirty and dangerous. Um, And that was the story of automation in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, uh, where, you know, robots had replaced human workers on the assembly line. Now, with machine learning uh, in particular, the jobs that are sort of open to automation and are at the greatest threat for technological unemployment, if that is to happen, are going to be more of the cognitive and intellectual jobs that we consider white-collar jobs. So algorithms now can write original stories for publication, and that challenges journalists and their you know skill at doing writing or technical writers who create manuals and other things like that. Um you have algorithms that can make original scientific discoveries because it can look through a huge set of data collected by scientific instruments and find a pattern that is able to be generalized that maybe the scientist himself or herself doesn't see in that data set. Same with medical diagnostics. Now, can it do everything? No. But if your job is looking at data and making inferences from data, chances are an algorithm can do that work and probably do it better than you can.
0: That's amazing. Are you still on
1: Facebook? I am still on Facebook only because there's people there that I don't have contact with because that's all they use. But my feeding the algorithm, my own data has significantly dropped off because you know, the thing that we've come to realize, I think over time is that Facebook is not a social media platform that is its user facing sort of, uh, you know, interface. Uh, it really is a data company. And it, used, you know, it really is an AI company, and what it's doing is using the social media platform as a way to siphon all the data out of the world to learn human behavior, to train its algorithms, to do things better. So I tell my students all the time, you know, it's not that you use Facebook. Facebook uses you. Mm-hmm. And you've got to recognize how that relationship is structured and what our opportunities are, but also what are the liabilities uh, for us using that kind of technology
0: yeah it's really hard i really really dislike it and i i can't get myself to erase it because there are especially like the people that are a little older it was kind of like the first thing they got after myspace i guess (laughs) um so there's like a kind of a whole generation of people that don't have instagram or twitter or anything else and that i don't know if i would get to see if i deleted it completely but i really like really don't want to be there anymore (laughs)
1: it's <laughs> sort of like the same reason why I have a landline on, right. you know, on home telephone. Uh, it's not because I use it. It's because the older relatives and older uh, friends I, I have, that's what they call. And yeah. if I didn't have that, they couldn't get in touch with me. Exactly. So Facebook yeah. serves that kind of purpose. Yeah, exactly.
0: I'm going to think of it like that. It's just a landline that you just I'm just letting lay around. But I don't really like use it actively or anything. I just check it once in a while to like see if one of those people has... Messaged me or something like that really like, took it off my phone and all of that because I know I mean it all listens to you now So what is it? <laughs> That's the other side of it is like how much can you worry because it's all it's all listening like I have a new computer And I can't take Siri off of it. You're like you just can't all right now, you know <laughs>
1: Yeah, but you know the, the Facebook app on the phone is is rather devious because even when you're not using it, it's still recording uh, what you're doing on your device as long as you're logged in. So having it off your phone is a good plan.
0: Okay, good. I took that in Messenger off just because, I, I, I don't know, it just freaks me out. But I realized that, I don't know, it was maybe last summer, I was in Florida and I was visiting a friend and uh, I was at a bar and it wasn't even like a radio was on or a DJ or something, like, nothing that was actually, like, that I would imagine the algorithms could pick up, like, the music that was playing. But it was, like, just a guy, like, singer-songwriter, like, playing his guitar, you know? And uh, I guess my phone was listening because as soon as I opened my phone, the Spotify app was, like, up on that same song that the guy was, like, playing in the bar. And I was, like that's weird <laughs> yeah that is weird yeah uh-huh. and it's not something that i normally listen to you know so that that's when i started realizing how much it was listening right and i switched all my patients i still have a few people in analysis over uh online and i switched them over to whatsapp because i felt like what, whatsapp is encrypted and all of that and hopefully that helps
1: Yeah, you know, we really have to sort of develop a better critical sense of, you know, sort of what consumers do with these apps because I think the assumption we make as educators in particular is that these are our digital natives and so they must know how to use all this technology and they understand it. But the fact is, yeah, they use it but they don't understand it. And they are not in a position to make good informed critical choices about what to use, how to use it, what not to use. And I think the onus is on us as educators to really help them understand their own culture uh, in a way that makes them much better citizens of, you know, the 21st century.
0: That's a great way to put it. I saw the, the film The Great Hack, I think it was called. And it oh, yeah. starts out with the professor, like, trying to show the students these things. And one of the students was like, but it's always been like this, like, my whole life. And, like, so what if it's showing me ads and stuff, like... When, when should I like, really care? When is it really affecting me, you know?
1: So what, an exercise I do with my students, and they initially really hate it, um, because it forces them to do something they don't want to do, but I force them to read the terms of service agreements that they have to click agree on for their major platforms. And the reason we read them is because these are contractual arrangements between you and the service provider, And there's a whole lot of power that you turn over to the service provider when you click agree. And these are what we call contracts of adhesion. You can't negotiate them. You either agree or don't agree. And most people agree because they want the service. They want the app. They want to have this platform available to them to talk to their friends or interact. But so much is revealed in those documents about what the service is doing with you, with your data, with your IP and everything else. And once they start to read the terms of service, they realize that you know there is a lot that goes on behind the scenes that is available to us, but we like l- literally just willfully ignore it because we just click the agree button. And so forcing them to read the terms of service, I think, is a really interesting exercise because they start to see exactly what is happening with the data, who it's being shared with, why it's being shared with them, and what their rights and responsibilities are within these private sort of political organizations that they agree to to join.
0: I've never read the terms of service.
1: <laughs> They'll scare the hell out of you.
0: I bet it's like you don't want to look, you know, you don't you right. know right. that you don't want to know. It's
1: kind of like uh, <laughs> I want to see how the sausage is made.
0: Yeah, and it, but it clearly has like very real world effects, as we're seeing in the past few years. So. Maybe we all need to read it. (laughs) Um, What do you feel like the alternatives are?
1: Um, Well, okay, so, you know, one of the alternatives was delete Facebook, right? There's a huge campaign, delete Facebook. I don't know that deleting Facebook is the best solution. I mean, for some people it might be. But for a lot of people, um, like you and I have discovered, you, you can't just delete it because you have access to your social network through this platform for better or worse. So instead of deleting it, I think we need a real concerted consumer organization, almost like a union, pushing back. And I will say to Facebook's credit, they have at times altered their practices based on people pushing back. Uh, In 2009, they did some uh, rather draconian rewrite of their terms of service having to do with what they claimed as their access to your intellectual property. And it was really staking a claim to things that said, you know, we own your stuff in in effect. And some smart people caught it and organized. And there was an online campaign to push back on Facebook and Facebook finally capitulated and said, okay, yeah, we'll go back and, and rewrite our terms of service and remove that clause. So I think we can have some impact, but we can only do so if we're organized. I mean, one person has no impact, but you know, Hundreds of thousands, millions can. And when you're talking about a platform that has billions of users, uh, you can have an impact if you're able to mobilize. And I think, you know, squatting in these platforms is probably a good idea. And, you know, pushing back in a way that holds them to account is important. But that can't be the only thing. I mean, we need some sort of government uh, involvement because our government is there to protect us. And if we don't have them on our side, I don't know that we have as much power as we can possibly exercise. So, for example, you see Zuckerberg go constantly out to Washington and get grilled by the senators about what Facebook is doing. But they never make any laws, right? They ask him all these hard questions, and he goes back to Facebook and says, okay, we promise we'll kind of maybe do something. But it would be good if our government would say, you know, okay – We've heard from Zuckerberg, we've heard from Google, now we're going to make some laws to help protect consumers uh, who use these platforms. So I think it's a double-edged approach. You have to have consumers pushing back from within, you've got to have government pushing back from without, and we've got to have some way of holding these corporations accountable for what they do or don't do uh, with this technology.
0: Yeah, they can't keep saying like, oh, we didn't realize it was going to be used like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh-huh. we didn't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is kind of uh, oops, sorry, our bad. Uh, <laughs> when you're talking about an election in the case of the 2016 outcome, uh, that is more than oops, our bad. That yeah. is something that should have been caught uh, and something should be done about it in advance of the 2020 election, too.
0: Exactly. And it definitely does work uh, if the government puts some different rules in place. Because then, it, since moving to the EU, they have this like GDPR kind of rule right. now. where You have to like be notified, and then, uh, and I didn't even realize how much that was helping until I went back to the US for like a month, like a month ago. And um, then all of a sudden, all these like pop ups and things were like going on my computer that I never have here. I never right. have in Sweden. You know. So it does make a difference.
1: So I mean, you know. I have a friend who's a lawyer who uh, once said, you know, our technology advances at light speed and our law advances at pen and paper speed. And it's true. The law is always lagging the technology. But I think, you know, we have to begin to initiate some rulemaking, some policy, some some regulation. And it's not going to be perfect. You know, it's going to be a draft. But, you know, law is good for that effect because it can evolve. And it can be interpreted by the courts and it can get better over time but i think we have to move in that direction i think the eu has taken a big step in that uh, direction by innovating with gdpr i think the united states has been really lax in uh, responding to these challenges and uh, my hope is is that you know in, after the 2020 presidential election we can maybe get someone to move in that uh sort of way to push our legislatures to start making some attempt regulator or make policy for the technology you'll notice however right now in even in the democratic field none of the candidates are talking about this right there is no ai policy discussion and there should be an ai policy discussion because it is the thing that makes the difference um you know trump will talk about the immigrants taking our jobs it's not the immigrants taking our jobs it's the ai and unless we're prepared to talk about this in advance of this robot incursion um, we're not going to be ready for it. I think the only person who is talking about it is Andrew Yang, who talks about the universal basic income mm-hmm. as a way to sort of ride out the technological unemployment that might happen. But that's only one puzzle piece, and we've got to have a much bigger picture um, and a better better strategy for addressing these challenges.
0: Exactly, and it also contributes, you know, the tech industry to to like pollution and everything too, and you know there's like an island in like indonesia where all these parts of computers are being dumped or all this kinds of other stuff that people aren't addressing or talking about either like those companies should be responsible for waste management of their products or something it, it, you
1: know, it, yeah exactly it's not only waste management but you have something you know which was invented as a you know a currency for people who were displaced namely bitcoin Uh, Becoming no longer a currency of exchange, but becoming an investment currency. And it turns out that in order to generate Bitcoin and maintain the blockchain that runs Bitcoin, you have to use so much electricity that Bitcoin consumes as much electricity as a small country now. And that's just to maintain the currency now other currencies also have a carbon footprint I mean credit cards have a carbon footprint Um, You know uh, the fiat currencies that we have have a carbon footprint, but the Bitcoin carbon footprint is pretty substantial And I think if we're going to look at this from the perspective of pollution We also have to look at it from the perspective of climate change and carbon footprint because a lot of these technologies have a massive carbon footprint Uh, these huge data centers don't run themselves right they're they're run by electricity and where does that electricity come from they're cooled down by air conditioning where does that air conditioning power come from Uh, these are parts of that equation that have to be worked out as we figure out what the impact of this stuff is globally speaking
0: it's a really good point i'm really trying to educate myself about all these things and um I recently read uh, Edward Snowden's new book, Permanent Record, and that was really interesting to see how, like, all of the kind of actual mechanics and, like, cables and, like, parts and all of these things were, like, American and how that's, like why a lot of American, like, laws are not having laws and that sort of thing kind of hold and why, like, some countries don't want all of these things in their country, like, say, China, because it's not just like, oh, the Chinese are just trying to oppress their people or something, as the American, like, idea of it is, but it's more like they don't want America's stuff in there, like, spying on them, those kinds of
1: ideas. Well, and vice versa, right? I mean, we had, right, just recently, two senators um, issue a letter concerning the application TikTok which is uh, based in China, and their concern is that uh, this is now the first Chinese app that has really caught on globally, and that American teenagers were downloading it for doing video chat, um, just kind of like Snapchat, right? And that there would be this concern that uh, we would have Chinese uh, software on our phones, And that could expose American users to surveillance in China, to Chinese law, um, you know, under a subpoena or something. And so there was a huge concern about that, too. So, you know, this is cutting all directions because each country is developing its own set of technologies, its own set of regulations, its own set of policies. And this technology is not going to stay in one country. It's global. Right, and right. how these things extend across the globe is going to impact beyond the national boundaries
0: yeah so this this between the internet and like climate change it seems like there needs to be some more like kind of global <laughs> working together on like how to address all of these things because it is impacting kind of everyone everywhere now interesting I don't know how they're going to do that because that could also go horribly wrong <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yes. I mean, you just have to look at our history to see how things can go horribly wrong. And it has in the past, yes.
0: Um, um, Can we talk about your Zizek work? Yeah, sure. How did you get involved with this?
1: So in 2006, uh, Paul Taylor, who's at the University of Leeds, approached me and he said, that he wanted to create a journal uh, called the International Journal of Zizek Studies, sort of uh, modeled on what had been uh, the International Journal of Baudrillard Studies that had been operational uh, for a number of years. Uh, and he didn't have any clue as to how to do this. He wanted to do it all by ourselves. He wanted to launch it as an open-access online journal without uh, any kind of corporation holding the, uh, the keys to the kingdom. And he got together with a friend of his and they put together a website and they threw it up and he asked me what I thought of it. And uh, I said, it's absolutely horrible (laughs) because I I have a background in web uh, design and development. So, you know, he wanted me to really weigh in on it. And he said, well, what would you do to fix it? And I'm like, well, lots of things. And he says, well, if I get you a little money from the University of Leeds, do you think you could put together a working platform that we could utilize? And so we did. And we collaborated on that and then launched the journal in 2007 and then just started getting a lot of really interesting contributions from people all over the world, mainly because the journal was free, it was open access, it didn't require any subscription, and we were able to penetrate markets that oftentimes the uh, academic journals that you have to pay for through subscription don't have access to. And so we a lot of people in South America contributing, a lot of people in Asia contributing. um, And it became this kind of pretty big global phenomenon for a a small academic startup. Um, And as, you know, the whole movement to journals moving from paper to online Mm -hmm. uh, has occurred in the last decade, we were kind of ahead on that curve, which was kind of nice. We were able to sort of be – Uh, in a leadership position for a lot of what became the open access movement in academic publishing.
0: That's amazing. Uh, And it's still open access?
1: It's still open access, it's still available online, in fact I'm having a meeting tomorrow with our library to talk about what might be the next generation of this thing because we've kind of outgrown our current platform, which is the Open Humanities Press Platform, which is a nice little package out of uh, Canada, but it doesn't allow for a lot of the back end uh data processing that li- libraries need to do to index uh the content and so we want to be a little more uh proactive with uh working with librarians and information scientists so we're going to be meeting tomorrow to talk about uh how we can evolve our uh system to be a little more uh in touch with what is necessary for you know users students scholars you name it
0: That's wonderful and so your your third book that's coming out is a collection of articles from this journal.
1: Right, and so that that book is really taking, what we did is we sat down with 12 years of articles, and we just said, okay, which ones have had impact, which ones have been the most uh, cited, the most interesting from the perspective of other readers, and then we bundled those up in a package, um, sort of divided them into three areas. Uh, It's called uh, philosophy, politics, pop culture, which sort of, you know, Spand Thumbs up G- Zizek. <laughs> what he does, right? Um, and then just assembled, you know, five or six essays under each category and then uh, put it together as a, as a single book. And the idea was that this would allow people who maybe aren't regular readers of the journal to have access to the best and the brightest uh, out of that uh, effort.
0: Yeah, or someone like me that's just finding out about it so I can, like, catch up. Catch up yeah. to where you are. <laughs> You know, no, that's great. I really appreciate uh, all the work that he's done because like every person I've spoken to, that's like, I don't know, under 30, 35. Um, it's like a whole generation of people. When I asked them like how they got into psychoanalysis, it's like oh, right. And that's yeah. so nice.
1: He's, he's an amazing sort of mechanism for funneling young minds in the direction of some really important philosophical and psychoanalytical work, right? So you're right. People come to Lacan through Zizek, which I think is a really interesting way to come at Lacan, and it sort of exposes uh, a new audience to that work. Same with Hegel, right? I have Mm -hmm. young colleagues who went and started to read Hegel not because they wanted to know about Hegel but because Žižek told them something about Hegel and they wanted to know more and so Žižek was sort of the gateway drug to Hegel right i often explain Žižek to my uh, students as you know he's he's a philosophical dj he takes a little sample of lacan sets down a beat lays a little you know vocal from hegel gets that on top of it and creates this mashup of lacan and hegel and like A piece of remix that can expose old music to new audiences Zizek is able to expose new audiences to older philosophical you know writings and thinkers that maybe they wouldn't have had access to and so you know people are exposed to it through his work but they don't just have it there but they actually seek it out and they go back to the original just like people who hear a a mashup go back to the original to hear what the uh, initial source was for the sample so I think it's a really clever way of working with material and i think he's an expert at it he does it so well
0: yeah he really does and that's a really good way to think about it the way you just described and uh yeah and then he also relates it like to pop culture and like film and that sort of thing so he like gets people into interested in theory that might have just been interested in film or the arts or something um and weren't even thinking about psychoanalysis or philosophy so (laughs) so it's that's great because that's I feel like this the way the di- world is digital now, it's like prime for people to understand like these kinds of theories of the mind more than ever because everybody is creating their own image and everybody is like projecting and you can see how all the projections work so clearly with like things that happen on social media and online. Um, so it's like ripe to just like be like, say this is what Freud or Lacan said about this <laughs> see how it's working. You can see it at play right here so I think that's great thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious you've just heard a discussion with Dr. David Gunkel you can find links to his work and all of his books at his website gunkelweb.com that's G-U-N-K-E-L com. You can also visit my website, Dr. net, and our website, renderingunconscious.org. Rendering Unconscious is also a book: Rendering Unconscious: Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash. V a n e s s -S a, two, three, C a r l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. I'll always be be a word. There's no calligraphy for French girls. He's closely on sure. One of my favorites. A spiral. A, a serpent. A rock is <laughs> it's not, not sacred. okay. period of such a, a and matter. Tell, wearing the big white hat. Seems to be in a hurry, but where he's going, he'll have
1: time and nothing but. And none of the good citizens of Chicago is exactly... The third mind is when two minds collaborate.
0: So i a guy's name one before the 5 Contact the carrier for help. Catered to the mysterious, the unusual, and sometimes the supernatural. A program of. Because you are here. And let me quote to you, young officers, The Third Mind is when two minds collaborate. Brian Geisenwell collaborated this manual, elementary, creating more creative and writers illusion, techniques, which traces a series of such collaborations. Reasons why it's the artistic world can't yeah, very operation very rewrite my the mm-hmm. yeah. 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 illusion. Yeah. Okay. Now these experiments started yeah. not on paper like cards, but on paper. In 1959, Brian Guice said that writing is 50 years behind painting. By the passage of time, applied the montage technique to words on a page. Be a word, man. It's no calligraphy for French prose. He's closely, I'm quite sure, one of my favorites. A spiral, a serpent, a grasshopper. It's not sacred, okay it's with tonal. it? But we physical. Indeed, the final across the world blow, spiritual and physical. Sacrifice ourselves. Oh. Stop this cycle. Uh-huh. Thanks again. I look forward well, to your arrival. You People uh, suffering will tell you when the line is free. Representation of my spiritual life. By the passersby, you know the plans uh, to right. become a master yeah, actually, of, your, actually, of your. By the no fewer than a hundred, it seems to work just more. and Those who are be the true self are well situated and. I
1: oh, uh, yeah. master, yeah. master oh, of Your, ready. Ready? Says, yes, you know. yes. your call, please.